0: Well, good morning, Temple Baptist Church. Good to be with you again this morning. And uh, we're going to continue in our series, This We Know, as we uh, sit in on the upper room conversations. And uh, the sermon this morning is called, He Did What? Now, you know, you've probably said that in your life. Maybe that's been said about you. That's a statement often of betrayal. And so we're going to look at betrayal this morning. Uh, in this sermon, he did what? So take your Bibles, hope you have your Bible there with you, and open up to John chapter 13. And we're going to jump right into the story here this morning that we began to uh, unpack last Sunday. And it's, we're going to jump right in at the betrayal of Judas, uh, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And uh, so as we start this morning, let me ask you this. Have you ever been betrayed? Uh, I think if you've lived any length of time, you've experienced betrayal. Sometimes it's a small betrayal, right? Somebody uh, tells a a secret or something like that. Sometimes it's a Judas-sized betrayal where somebody does something that just upends your life. And, uh, you know, maybe you've been a betrayer. Maybe you've betrayed someone. And, you know, Jesus tells us in uh, John chapter 16, which we'll uh, get to a little uh, farther down the road, but he tells us that when the Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit will lead us into all truth. Ask God this morning, have you been a betrayer? And do you need to seek uh, forgiveness for that and repent of that and try and make repair where that has uh, taken place? But this morning, let's start by saying, what is betrayal? We, we, We may have some idea, but what is betrayal? Betrayal is this. It's the treacherous exposing or deceiving of people by those that they trusted. By those that they trusted. That's betrayal, right? When somebody exposes or deceives you or whatever, and it's somebody that you trusted. Now, there is Judas level betrayals in life, right? Where, uh, you know, a friend sort of, uh, or at least somebody that's masquerading as a friend, turns out uh, to. Uh, really destroy the relationship by way of betrayal. And uh, listen, let's state the obvious. Betrayal, as we unpacked this morning, was experienced by the Lord Jesus. And remember that in verse 16, uh, it tells us there in uh, the, the uh, Gospel of John, if we look back just a couple of verses, it tells us that you know a servant is not greater than his master. So whatever Jesus experiences, we're going to experience, right? So we're going to experience betrayal. And in fact, in chapter 16 of John's gospel, at the end of this upper room teaching, Jesus tells us that he, he says to the disciples, I've told you all of these things here in this upper room that uh, in, may, in me you may have peace because in this world, you will have trouble, or some translations say tribulation. So we're going to experience many of these same experiences that Jesus experiences. We're going to experience betrayal. And most of us already know that because we've already experienced it, right? And so here's what I'd like us to do, and we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so uh, I'm gonna be kind of ratcheting through here, but uh, we might be a little longer than we normally are, but I know you have nowhere to go. Everything's closed, you can't go out for lunch, so just sit, relax. I uh, hope you have a cup of coffee there with you, and uh, we're going to walk through the text this morning, friends, and there's a number of really wonderful principles here that will help us as we deal with betrayal, as we reflect how Jesus deals with it, and uh, so I'm going to give you the principle, and then I'm going to give you the application, and you may have your notes there, and you can follow along. So here we go. Hear the word of the Lord. We're going to begin at John 13, verse 18. Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. And this is talking about who's going to betray him. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does, you may believe that I am he. Now, the wonderful thing about Jesus we know is that he ever cares for his children, including us. And... He is about to reveal his betrayer to these disciples so that these disciples will not be completely bewildered and terrified when they get to Gethsemane and Judas kisses Jesus to identify him. And they realize in that moment, as Jesus is taken hostage, that their earthly plans and patterns are coming unwound very quickly. And in fact, he quotes there Psalm 41.9 when he said, Even my close friend, whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Why does he quote Psalm 41.9? Because Jesus is lifting the curtain and revealing these uh, to these disciples in ever-increasing ways that this is God's plan in ages past. This is not just something that also, oh my goodness, this is happening. And Jesus is never surprised. And I hope that it's occurred to you at some time in your Christian life that nothing has ever occurred to God. And that's our first principle. Nothing ever occurs to God. God is omnipresent and that includes both place and that includes time. You know, if you look back in John's Gospel to John chapter 3, right, the water into wine at Cana of Galilee at that wedding, you may be familiar with it. They run out of wine, Jesus takes the water, turns it into wine. You know, that miracle, what what is it? It's a miracle over time. Because you actually can make water into wine with a few ingredients and a little effort, but Jesus does it instantaneously, and he demonstrates that he is God over time, that he is not constrained by that. He's Lord over time. And so... Nothing ever occurs to God. He can see our lives in full scope, the full array of everything that will happen to us. So what's the application to that? If, if nothing ever occurs to God, is the principle. The application is this. When you are shocked and surprised, and maybe that's by betrayal, right? Remember that God is steadfast. Remember that God is steadfast, even though you may be shocked and surprised something in your life. And these disciples, frankly, they become very fearful, don't they, in the next few hours. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had fear run down your back? You know, where where for a moment you've been gripped by fear and you're like, wow, what is happening? Uh, Listen, listen, that is undeniably the devil overplaying his hand. When you're gripped by fear as a child of God, that's the devil overplaying his hand. And the first thing you want to do is say, you know what, devil? I'm not going to let you run around in my heart and in my mind. We're not going to play those games. Uh, The Bible is replete with statements in regards to fear. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Uh, uh, Philippians 4.6 tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. What do we do? By prayer and supplication. We, uh, with thanksgiving, we make our requests known to God. Psalm 56.3, the psalmist says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. It's not of the Lord. Now, when betrayal comes to us, when we're betrayed, often... Often the, the the emotion that runs through us is fear. And the reason why that happens is because betrayal, in some regard, it puts us on sinking sand, right? Because betrayal brings into our life an erosion of trust. Because remember when I defined it, it says, I said that somebody who may have been a friend, a close associate, because it's only those really close to you that can really hurt you with betrayal. When they betrayal, it erodes the the ground under your feet. Trust is eroded. And often that fear is manifested as anger, but the fear is the primary emotion. And so when you are caught off guard, remember that God is, is steadfast, and you being caught off guard is you being caught off guard. But it's not God being caught off guard, because nothing has ever occurred to God. And so remember, God is steadfast. He is with you. You are safe. The second thing I want you to notice from our text this morning. The second principle is this. God's master plan is independent of human interference. So when betrayal comes in your life and it upsets your life or whatever you, oh man, that's gonna that that is so painful, it's causing problems, it's upending my life. God's master plan is completely independent of human interference. Now, question for you this morning. Was the cross, the cross of Christ, was that God's plan B? No. No. And, and, and we could say, well, it must have been his plan B. Maybe it was his plan B because Jesus picked a dud in Judas Iscariot. But it was his plan A. Why then, if that was God's plan A, would Judas be culpable or be guilty, right? If, if he actually participate in, participated in the fulfilling of God's ultimate? Uh, plan his master plan. Why would he be cul- culpable or guilty in that if he played that role in God's redemption, right? And you know, you go to Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good. Oh well, you know, why is he culpable then? Simply because of this. Because Judas was evil. His motivation, his desires were evil. So even though. In God's plan, he was part of it. He is responsible for his personal sin. And God's sovereignty does not eradicate human responsibility. So God's plan cannot be interfered with or upended, but that doesn't remove our human responsibility. And so if the principle is God's plan is independent of human interference, then how do we apply that in our lives? Well, here's how we apply it. We live as surrendered people, surrendered to His will, and when we do that, we will experience peace and blessing. We realize that whatever is happening, that it cannot be upending God's master plan, and even though we may not choose it, we can live in the reality that we are surrendered to His will, and when we do that, you know what, we can actually experience peace and blessing. That's what those disciples needed to do. Because even though Judas was doing this, it was part of God's master plan. And uh, that's just so incredibly important in our lives, isn't it? Because so often we feel like, wow, our life is just, you know, stood on its head. But God is on his throne. He is sovereign. He is good. Look at verse 20. Interesting verse. Let me just give you a sidebar on that verse. The verse reads this, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me.'" Why is that verse placed right in there? It seems like a bit of an unusual verse in the midst of this narrative, doesn't it? Well, the verse powerfully ties the disciples to Jesus. It it interfaces them. He says, you know what? Whoever receives the one I send, which is them, receives me. We are interconnected in the mission of which you are going to enter into when I leave this earth. They're deeply tied. And therefore, it serves as a foil for the failure of Judas Iscariot. And the mission of Jesus here is assigned high and deep theological significance. And he's saying to them, remember maintain the mission. You are sent by me. You are of me. You represent or re me to the world. And that is your mission. And their mission takes on precisely the absolute same significance that Jesus' mission did when he was sent by the Father. And he wants to remind them of that in the midst of this upending of this betrayal that is taking place. And then we get to verse 21. Let's read on. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, I truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, "Lord, who is it?" Here's the principle. Here's the principle. Human logic can be at odds with and cloud God's truth and God's plan. Now that's a mouthful. Let me say it again. Human logic can be at odds with it, be at odds with and cloud God's truth and God's plan. These disciples, they're bewildered. They're like, who is doing this? Well, you know, I can't believe anybody. None of us would do this. Is it me? Like, I just, there, there's no logic to this. Well, we know that Christ was destined to die. We open up the book of Acts chapter two, and Peter says, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan, right? This was God's plan. However, Jesus is troubled, and bewildered. Now, why is Jesus troubled? I think he's troubled at the evil in the world that he knows is so common. And this instance of the evil is in one of his own followers. The disciples, are they're bewildered. They're, their logic has stood on its head because they're not thinking of some deliberate betrayal, but they're thinking of somebody, you know, makes some wrong move. Right There's some kind of wrong move that takes place. And and further, they had no sense of timing, like, what's going on? What is actually happening here? In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it tells us again that they were sorrowful and began to say to one another, you know, is it I, Lord? Amongst all of them, they could not comprehend that this could be happening. They had no idea that it was Judas. But listen, friends, Judas's life was in definite spiritual decline. They didn't see it, but it was. In fact, a year before at Capernaum, he had been called an adversary in John chapter 6. And he revealed his greedy heart just in chapter 12, one chapter before the chapter we're studying. Satan had sown the seed of betrayal to Judas, but Judas had let that seed grow. That's going to be important and something I'm going to say in just a moment here. Now, why did Judas do this? And A lot of people say, oh, yeah, you know, it's money. It's the greatest motivator for evil is money. Well, why did Judas do this? It was not motivated by what you think it was motivated by. So let's unpack that, okay? Let me give you a little bit of chronology. If you remember the third temptation that Satan offered to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, right? The devil takes Jesus up to a very high place, a high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, You know, I will give you all of this. I'll give you all of this if you will worship me. And Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, right? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's the th- third temptation of Jesus that Satan brings. Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness. That establishment would require a great cost, right? His death on the cross to eradicate the sin that could not be part of this new kingdom. And Judas wanted to have the kingdoms of the world as defined by Satan, right? Not by Jesus. That is exactly what Judas wanted. And Satan was in control of Jesus, uh, Judas because in verse 27, it said, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. Now, let's just unpack that a little bit further. There is what I want to call a Lazarus factor that starts the ball rolling on what got Judas to this place in some regards. Because A few weeks before the Passover, you might remember, a man named Lazarus had been brought back to life by Jesus after being dead for four days. And this had the Sadducees, and the Sadducees controlled temple worship. They did not believe in resurrection. They denied resurrection, and they were not happy. And their concern was, we read about in John chapter 11, and they say, if we let this go on, if we let this Jesus do this kind of thing, right, the Romans are going to come and say, you know, you guys are running this, uh, this uh, place very poorly and they're going to take back control and we're going to lose our status and we're going to lo- lose our place of prominence. And uh, because of that, we read in John eleven fifty three 53, that from that day on, they made plans to kill Jesus because that resurrection of Lazarus and the excitement that that generated and everything, they're like, man, we are, this is not a good thing. But they had a problem. Jesus was wildly popular. People loved coming and listening and hearing the healing that he was doing. When he came to Jerusalem for this Passover, the crowds thronged and the crowds cheered. And, uh, you know, in a bit of comic relief, I think it's, I think it's kind of funny, right? The Sanhedrin, uh, who, who uh, uh, you know, were also against, they thought that they should kill Lazarus. And I think that's kind of funny because it's like, okay, let's kill Lazarus again. Well, Jesus will resurrect him. Well, let's kill him again. Well, Jesus will resurrect him. It's a bit of kind of really wild logic, isn't it? And so they could not afford a riot, you know, to to take Jesus hostage uh, would upset the crowds. And they could not afford a riot because a riot would mean that Rome would likely intervene and take hold of that which they were at that point allowed to lead. So they must wait till after Passover when the supporters have gone and the crowds have diminished, gone home. And then we get to Judas's contribution. Judas is going to make a contribution to their cause here. The Sanhedrin found a solution to the popularity of Jesus in Judas. If one of Jesus' inner circle, one of those deputies of Jesus would lay a charge against him. Who could argue the validity of that charge, right? If somebody right next to him could lay this charge. And remember what I said, betrayal takes place most painfully and most deeply with those who are closest to you. And then Judas shows up on the doorstep of the Sanhedrin, right? And he says to the chief priests, you know, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Remember, Satan planted a seed over a period of time, but Judas let it grow. And Judas says, hey, what what would you do for me if, if I gave you over? Jesus. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, the text tells us, he sought the opportunity to betray him. And Jesus had entered into the plan, and in so doing had preserved the timing of the crucifixion so that Jesus would, in fact, be the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that interesting? God is so, so magnificent in how all of this unfolds. And so, did, Jesus, did Judas do this for the money? Absolutely not. Of course he didn't do it for the money. Now, arguably, money motivates a lot of sinful behavior. But he already controlled the treasury, and he has embezzled money from the treasury of these itinerant uh, workers. and he liked doing that, as uh, John has told us that. Greed, maybe a very small, small role. but he had seen Jesus provide lunch for thousands. He knew that Jesus could turn water into wine. To kill him was counterproductive from a material perspective, ultimately, for Judas. The nature of the betrayal, friends, and I think this is logic twisted by Satan, Judas wanted the kingdom to come right away. And in coming, he wanted to be a vice president in the kingdom. And Jesus, he believed, could be forced to inaugurate that kingdom if he was pressed. And so he would create that environment He would create this uprising so that the people would readily crown Jesus as king. It's the same kind of kingdom that Satan proposed to Jesus that Judas wants. But the problem for Judas is that Jesus had already rejected that offer. And so Judas' betrayal was different in some sense. He's not going to give insider information, but he is going to lay a charge which the court will then have to respond to. And the charge, of course, is that Jesus is the Messiah. He claims to be Israel's king. But Judas never intended his actions would result in Jesus' death, because with Jesus' death, Judas would lose all he desired. And that's why when Judas saw that Jesus was, after he betrayed him, that Jesus was condemned and he, in fact, would die. He changed his mind, the text tells us, in, in Matthew 27. And he goes back to the religious leaders, and he throws a silver piece out, and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I don't want him actually to die. This is, this is not what I wanted. This is not the reaction of a man who has achieved his purpose. And so, when we try and shoehorn things into our human thinking and understanding, we We do this, and we stand in the way of understanding the full will of God. Betrayals often can be so befuddling, can't they? So the principle, as I mentioned, is that human reasoning or logic can be at odds with and cloud God's truth and God's plan. Judas used human reasoning to shape his thinking and his heart and dictate his actions, and it created disastrous results for him. And that's why Isaiah 55, 8 tells us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. Let's go down to verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Now, here's the application, friends. Our goal in challenging situations, including betrayal, our goal in challenging situations is not necessarily to understand, but to obey and to trust, but to obey and to trust. And is that hard at times? Without a doubt. I get that. Ask not why, but what is it, God, that you want me to learn and know about you from this difficult time? Remember, we used to sing an old song, Trust and Obey, right? And the tune I didn't much care for, but the words were good, right? Then in fellowship sweet, we sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, right? Never fear, only trust and obey. You know, there's, we see this so common in our own lives, but let me give you a biblical example, biblical example right? Moses and Joshua, Numbers chapter 13, the Lord says to Moses, go over and spy out the land of Canaan. And you know the story. And so go and spy out the land of Canaan and, and comma, and then he says this to Moses, the land which I'm giving to you. Wow. So, what you know the story, Moses sends spies over to spy out the land and they go over there and they have a look and, and they're supposed to go and look and see whether the land is good and what does it look like, you know, and is there cities and, you know, and, and is the land rich or poor and so they go and human reasoning and human logic shapes their thinking because they come back and they go, yeah, the land looks pretty good but man, there's big people over there, holy cow, if we go over there... We're going we're gonna to be run over. We, we're, we're, just, we're puny in their sight. We're like grasshoppers. They're giants. Man, we, we, this, is, this is not going to work. And so they don't go based on human reasoning. And that means that they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So all those that are disobedient to God's will by using human logic and reasoning will die in the wilderness. And Joshua and Caleb are two spies that begged the people to go f- when, when, on that first go-round. And they said, you know what? They had seen the exact same place. They had seen the exact same challenges, right? And they said, "Uh, you know what? We should not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the people don't go. Now, turn the clock ahead 40 years. Joshua 1 tells us that after the death of Moses, that the Lord said to Joshua, right? Moses, my servant, is dead. It's a new chapter. And here's what I want you to do. Therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And so Joshua again sent spies. And so the spies go over and they view the land. Remember, this is when they stay with Rahab. And their report is in Joshua 2.24. Listen to what they say. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They were not going to let human logic get in the way of God's truth and God's plan. Judas used human reasoning. I can force Jesus' hand, and he will have to unveil his human kingdom, and then we, co-workers with Jesus, will be right there as the vice president. Man, that'll be great. He was satisfying his own mind instead of the will of God. Remember, we want to know what God wants. Wants from us, not why he does certain things. And so we trust and we obey. Was Judas guilty if he fulfilled God's plan? Yeah, he was. He absolutely was. Verse 26 as we conclude this morning. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Here's the principle, friends. Really important principle. And I want you to think about your own heart this morning as I share this. The principle is this. Proximity to Jesus is no guarantee of intimacy with Jesus. Proximity with Jesus is no guarantee of intimacy with Jesus. Judas had walked the same roads as the 12. Judas Judas had seen the same miracles. He'd heard the same teachings. Judas had been treated the same way. He got his feet washed, right? Right up till the end. And no one knew it was Judas. Now, what's the application? If proximity to Jesus is no guarantee of intimacy with Jesus, here is the application. If you're watching this this morning and you say, you know what, I I don't think I know Jesus. I'm not really a follower of Jesus. I've never given my life and surrendered my life and put Jesus on the throne of my life and said, Jesus, put put my sin on your account. Be King and Lord of my life. If you've never done that, then you need to make Jesus your Lord and your King. Right? Because you may be in proximity to Jesus, but you don't have any intimacy with Jesus. Now, if you are a believer this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you this. Are you seeing growth in intimacy and depth of relationship with Jesus? Are you growing up in Jesus or just growing old in Jesus? Because you may be doing all the things you're going to church. Maybe you serve at church. You know, you, you know you've got Bibles in your home and everything. But, but really, at times, you're more of a fan of Jesus than you are a fully surrendered and deep follower of Jesus. And the final principle is this this morning. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to them. Some thought that Jesus. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Here's the final principle this morning, friends. The final principle is this. God is the final judge of everyone's actions. When somebody betrays you, when somebody turns on you, when somebody hurts you, remember that God is the final judge of everyone's actions, including ours. Including mine and yours, right? Jesus honored Judas with a foot washing. Then he honored him with a morsel of bread dipped in, uh, dipped for him there. And then Jude, Jesus let Judas go. Do you see that? Jesus let Judas go. It's an interesting thing because he's going to give the final judgment on what Judas does. So what's the application there? What's the application? When someone is on your hook, right? They're on your hook. But when you let someone off your hook, remember this, they're still on God's hook. Right, God will be the ultimate judge when somebody hurts you and betrays you and deceives you and lets you down. You can let them off your hook and remember, they are still on God's hook. And so you can be freed to continue to fish, to continue to fulfill God's will. If you can think of a betrayer that has hurt you this morning, I I just want to say this. You know what? Let that betrayer off your hook today. Let that betrayer off your hook. Uh, this week I was reading Psalm 150, a great psalm of praise, and uh, as I was thinking about this morning, I, I want to share some things with you. When you are betrayed, when you are betrayed, praise Him that He is not surprised, right? When you are betrayed, praise Him that His eternal plans cannot be thwarted. When you are betrayed, praise Him that He that his will and his ways are beyond our simple and sometimes sinful logic. Praise him that we can be more than groupies, but we are his blood-bought children. And praise him that one day God does settle all accounts and we can leave our hurt with him. May God bless you and keep you as you reflect on these realities this week. Father God, we love you. We love you, Lord. And Father, may we be able to hand the hurt of betrayal over to you. Father, this morning, if you need to bring the truth of conviction in our lives where we've been a betrayer, and we need to go and make things right, give us both the humility and the courage to do that, Lord. That we may go and make things right. Father God, thank you that your word is so clear and helpful and hopeful. May it engrave itself upon our hearts and may it shape our lives as we want to be more of the aroma of Christ in every regard. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen and amen.